week two here at Redemption Hill Church. Week two. And, and I've been thinking, like, what, what's God going to have for us at week 20? Maybe two years down the road. You know, there's plenty of room in this space to invite people in and to gather. Um, so week two, Lord willing, 20 weeks, two years, 20 years down the road, um, we'll be able to celebrate God's goodness through the gospel here at Redemption Hill Church. And just as a reminder, before I get into the message, uh, between now and the end of the year, I'm going to spend most of my time kind of laying the groundwork of, like, of our beliefs and distinctives. Like, who are we as a church? Right? We've got to kind of answer that question, especially if you're a new church and people are wondering, what do you believe? So in the weeks ahead, we'll hear about um, kind of reform soteriology. That, that means how, how, how does God save? So that's kind of a big theological question and hopefully we'll bring good answers to that from God's word. That's in the weeks ahead. Also, I'm going to talk about God's design for men and women. When we open God's word, we read that he designed men and women um, with uh, equal in standing, but with particular roles in the church and in the home. We want to we we look at that. And then also be preaching on topics like what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's when we'll get into what does the Bible say about things like spiritual gifts, right? We read about prophecy and tongues and miracles and a whole lot of other things. And uh, we'll wrestle with that as we look at God's word. So that's in the coming weeks ahead. And then, just so you know, in 2019, when the, when the calendar turns, uh, I'm going to get into the book of Galatians. So if, you, if you're like a studier and you like to you know, know what's coming ahead and plan ahead, that's we'll, where we will be. So you can go to Galatians and d- dive in there um, ahead of time if you'd like. Um, and just offer one more reminder that during this um, kind of soft launch phase, I'm not going to be preaching as long, at least according to my own standards. So I'm going to do my best to restrain myself as we kind of figure out, um, you know, what, what's this all look like being in this building and with kids and, and technical stuff and all that kind of stuff. So I'm going to give space so, so I can honor your time and, and, you know, having kids around. That's a thing. So especially if you're a parent. <laughs> uh, for today, I want us to look at Matthew 28. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open up there. From the Gospel of Matthew. We read about why Redemption Hill Church needs a culture of discipleship and mission. We need a culture here, and we need to lay the groundwork going forward, a culture of discipleship and mission. So let's look at our text and see what God has for us this morning. So Matthew 28, we'll start in verse 16, and we'll go through verse 20. Here's God's words to us this morning. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week, our, our first time to gather together as a church, I shared with you from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11, and we saw that what needs to be of first importance in our life, namely, The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most essential truth we could ever know and be affected by. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation of this church and the foundation of your very life. 
this world is going to offer you a thousand alternatives. Just step outside after church. There's, there's an alternative. There are other things that are vying for your affections. But I argued from 1 Corinthians 15 that by believing in the gospel, you find real joy, true peace, and lasting happiness. And believing in and being changed by the gospel has implications. When Jesus saves, things change. So this morning, I want to talk about some of the implications of being radically changed by the gospel. By the gospel, Because the fact is this, being a Christian results in a change in how you view the world and how you actually live in the world. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is costly. It's costly, but it's good. So in part, the message for this morning and the text that we'll be looking at is reflected in the church mission statement. Perhaps you've seen it on the website. Here it is. Redemption Hill Church exists to glorify God. Now, if I put a period right there, that's a great mission statement. But I add this, by making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. The effects of the gospel are, like I said, reflected in this mission statement. First, collectively, as a church and individually, we exist to glorify God. We want to bring glory to God with our lives and in this church. And how do we glorify God? What does it look like to bring honor and glory to God? By making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. In our mission statement, discipleship and mission, or if you want to use the word evangelism, exist side by side. The importance of growing in our relationship with God exists, that's discipleship, along with the significance of going out with the gospel to make more disciples. The local church exists to do both well. So why do I keep emphasizing that? It's because sometimes, and I've been a part of churches, where you find one church focusing on discipleship and the other one focusing on mission. They would sacrifice one over the other. As a matter of fact, in 2011, I remember watching a series of videos called The Elephant Room. You may not know it. You could probably YouTube it, The Elephant Room. The premise is this. The Elephant Room uh, took two well-known pastors and had the two pastors debate a topic. And there was a moderator, and he'd kind of, you know, referee the whole thing. And so there were various topics that were being discussed through various videos. Well, one of the topics was discipleship and evangelism, or discipleship and mission. And these two, one of the pastors, he said he, he tilted or bends the servicing and programming toward the unbeliever. So the focus is on evangelism. In other words, his, his priority is to go out and and share the gospel. The other pastor argued that maturing disciples of Jesus Christ takes precedence. And here, here's my problem with that entire debate as I watched and as I continued to meditate upon that. While it's good theater to create tension between two people and then watch them debating, the moderator was making a false dichotomy. Making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ are not opposed to one another, but they work with one another. So we can't sacrifice one for the other. And so what I'm suggesting this morning, and what I think we see in the scriptures, is that we want to be a church that creates a culture of discipleship, creates a culture of mission. I've said this before, every member of Redemption Hill Church is a sent missionary called to evangelize. And every member is called to grow in faith through the means of discipleship. 
and it's not pulling my ideas from thin air. I think the Great Commission message in Matthew 28 affirms our continual growth in the gospel and our going out with the gospel. The context of discipleship and mission of today's passage is verses 16 and 17. Here it, is, here it is again. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. So Jesus rose from the dead. He appears. Now he tells them to go to Galilee to a mountain, which Jesus had directed them. We don't know the name of the mountain. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And then some doubted, Matthew records. Now there are, there are several interesting points to make about these two verses. They're, they kind of set the scene for us. First, Jesus tells his disciples to go to Galilee to a mountain. Like I said, Jesus doesn't name the mountain, but mountains in the Gospel of Matthew are significant. I found this to be surprising as I was kind of wrestling and reading through the Gospel of Matthew this, this week. Think about it. Jesus gives his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. It is at this point in Matthew's Gospel where the magnitude of Jesus' teaching is revealed. Matthew 17, right, tells us when Jesus went up the mountain and was literally transfigured. It's a mountain where Jesus reveals who he is and his mission to suffer and die. And now in Matthew 28, he rose from the dead and Jesus tells his disciples their mission from a mountain. It's also significant that Jesus instructs his disciples to go to Galilee and not Jerusalem. Again, at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, we read that the earthly ministry of Jesus started in Galilee. And now the disciples are back in Galilee, which also happens to be the beginning of Gentile territory. And, th and that is interesting because Jesus is about to send them out to a people that doesn't hold their religious identity, their culture, or their history. It's also worth considering in verse 17 is that when Jesus appears to his disciples, I, I, do, I do think there were other present other than the 11, some people worship Jesus while others doubted. I think we've got to kind of wrestle with that. What's up with the doubt? So the question is this. Did some doubt to where they didn't believe Jesus rose from the dead? You know, perhaps. But I think actually the Greek language provides further clarification for us. The word for doubt here in Greek means literally hesitation or pause. It seems that some of the disciples saw Jesus and were processing that he was dead, now he's alive. What do you, what do, you do with that? And I think if I was in that position, I would have hesitated as well, if I'm being brutally honest with myself. Like, crucifixion, alive, what do you do? the most amazing, miraculous event that we, the world has ever seen. And so I believe hesitation here ultimately turned into worship once it could be comprehend, comprehended that Jesus died, defeated death, and then rose from death. So I picture this event kind of like a church service taking place. A bunch of people got together to worship Jesus and give glory to God. And, the first, and in this first century worship service eventually gave way to a final teaching from Jesus. And it's the teaching of Jesus, which really is the core and the emphasis of this message. It's verses 18 and 19. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples 
of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. One commentator said this about verse 18, that Jesus presents himself as the universal sovereign. What Jesus is claiming in verse 18 is that he is that the reason why he was put to death is because he had authority. That's why Jesus was put to the cross by the Jews and the Romans. He was claiming he had authority, not just earthly authority, but heavenly authority. And I was, as I was pondering that this morning, my mind went to uh, Matthew 9. And it's not in my notes, but I'm just going to read it because this is why Jesus died. And getting into the boat, Jesus crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic, paralytic lying in a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or say, Rise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. And so we fast forward to Matthew 28, and we read why it was so upsetting for people around him people around Jesus while he was put to the cross because who has that kind of authority except for God and with the resurrection Jesus proved his authority if there was any question before there's no question now and now in a mind-blowing turn of events Jesus is giving that same authority to his disciples and we can't miss the seemingly insignificant words in the Bible uh, apasa is a, a small Greek word often translated as all in the New Testament. So Jesus isn't just transform, transferring a limited amount of authority. Uh, he is giving them all authority in heaven and on earth. What Jesus is doing is kind of like what we see in a track and field relay race. A runner has a baton, and after the runner has gone the designated distance, a baton is given to the next runner, and the next runner is doing the same thing the previous runner was doing. And if you want to spread out that analogy, it just gets, that gets handed down from one generation to the next. So what does this mean for this church to be given all authority from Jesus? Which, again, is stunning. In my study of this passage, I was shocked that commentators were silent about what it should look like for disciples of Jesus Christ to have all authority transferred to them from Jesus. It was silent. I was like, I was expecting to see that kind of teased out. What does that mean? Well, I think Jesus is saying that God gives us all the authority that we need to fulfill the mission laid out by Jesus. So we have influence through the power of the Holy Spirit to go out and become disciple-making disciples. We have authority to go out and be on mission with and for we have authority to make disciples of all nations. 
you can note, and I think it's helpful, that the only imperative or command in our passage this morning is when Jesus says, go make disciples. Jesus isn't offering a suggestion. Like, hey, would you mind going and make disciples? No, he's saying, go make disciples. He is giving a command. So before getting into the nature of discipleship and mission, let's pause for a moment and see the implications of what's being said here. For the second time, Jesus used the word all to qualify the noun, nations. Implication, the Great Commission is about the church reaching, and you all know this, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every ethnicity, every generation, every color. One of the beautiful consequences of the gospel and being a disciple-making disciple is that when we die and we go to heaven, we shall see a diversity that this world could not have ever imagined. It'll be wonderful. It'll be beautiful. Now, while I acknowledge there are certain aspects of diversity that are sparse in this parts of America, we should be thinking about reaching the nations with the gospel. So near and far, we are disciple-making disciples. Now, we want to make a point about being a disciple-making disciple. Because if we're going to go and make disciples, we need to cultivate a culture of discipleship in our church. Let's think about what Jesus did and taught before the passion, before he died on a cross. What did Jesus do? Jesus taught his disciples. Jesus walked with tax collectors. And he broke bread with the marginal. Jesus corrected his disciples when appropriate. Jesus opened the scriptures and gave the correct interpretation. Jesus modeled humility and compassion for the sick and weak. Jesus demonstrated with his life what it looks like to serve instead of be served. And all the while, all the while, what's happening? Who's watching? The disciples. The disciples were watching Jesus. Asking questions, stumbling along, trying to understand, right? Yet Jesus was patient, loving, and gentle. Jesus is a shepherd discipling his sheep. You see, what we read in the Gospels is that discipleship doesn't happen in a moment. It happens with a series of moments over days months, years. Discipleship happens when a person walks with Jesus and walks with other people who are walking with Jesus. And discipleship must occur in this local church if we want to be a healthy local church. Therefore, discipleship redemptional church will take place formally and informally. Informally, discipleship takes place over a cup of coffee, right? You call on a friend and say, hey, meet me at Starbucks. It takes place having a conversation after service. It's, it's the encouraging text message that we send. Informally, we always want to be thinking about what, is it, what does it mean to walk alongside one another and create a culture of discipleship in this church. But it also happens formally, right? And Lord willing, 2019, we'll do community and discipleship groups. The, the language is very intentional because we want to create a formal context where we are walking alongside one another, praying with one another, repenting to one another, asking for forgiveness. Right? When we stumble, we, we offer the grace necessary through Christ to continue to get up and go. 
both formally and informally, we want to create a culture of discipleship. Discipleship is not created by a system. You can read a lot of church strategy gross, and it'll give you systems and methodology. But with the right church culture, which is created by a desire to become more like Jesus, that'll create discipleship through that. And discipleship is also looking out, and that's what we read in today's passage. From discipleship flows mission, and from mission flows discipleship. And I'll even argue this to my grave, that the maturity of a discipled Christian is often seen in his or her participation in God's mission. I'm going to have someone um, smarter than me back me up on this point. Uh, I found this really helpful. This commentator said, To the degree to which individuals and churches are committed to mission, both locally, so right here, and throughout the world, will be the measure of how godlike or how godly you are. An individual growing in his or her discipleship includes becoming more aware and active in God's ever-advancing, unstoppable mission to reach the lost with the gospel. Jesus never separated the two. He actually shows how they're connected. Here's one example from the Gospel of Mark. He shows us how discipleship and mission work together. He, Jesus, went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So Jesus is teaching at church. Jesus is going to the mall. And he's teaching. Disciples are watching. Then he gathers them together and says, now you go. Teach. Jesus teaches his disciples in the synagogue, at church, so they could grow. And in a matter of moments, he sends them out with, at this point, temporary authority to proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God. This was a part of discipleship for Jesus. I'm I'm sure you're hearing the same language in today's passage in Matthew 28. But the difference in Matthew 28 is that Jesus gives his disciples permanent authority. Permanent authority to what? Go baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then authority to do what? Teach, to observe all that I've commanded you. So now we're given authority to make disciples, and we read that the main components of making and maturing more disciples are to baptize and teach. So let's look at baptizing and then teach. When the Holy Spirit reveals Christ to a cold, dead, rebellious heart, we are called to baptize. Confessional baptism is a step in Christian discipleship. Confessional baptism is stepping out in obedience to Christ, and it's a public signal of identification with Jesus in his kingdom. When individuals are baptized at Redemption Hill Church, we will celebrate God's goodness to save, and we will celebrate the public declaration of an individual. I love to hear personal testimonies during a baptism ceremony. Because it's a person's articulation of the gospel, the goodness of God on their life. So Lord willing, we'll have many baptisms here at Redemption Hill Church where we can celebrate what God is doing. I also want to make a theological point in verse 19 about baptism. The gospel writer, Matthew, has a a Trinitarian God in mind. We are to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Interestingly enough, the Greek word for name 
is in the singular, while the entire Godhead applies. We do not baptize in the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A subtle but important clue that reveals how New Testament writers articulated the Trinity. One more subtle but I think significant clue from the text that I want to kind of draw out this morning regarding baptism. When a person is baptized, they're not just baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but it's actually more literally into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means we're not, the, saying this isn't like a formula for baptism, but I think the gospel writer Matthew is saying that baptism is an entrance into the spiritual family. There's nothing salvific in baptism. It doesn't save you, but it's a sacrament that is a part of our ongoing discipleship. That's baptism. That's what we're supposed to do as part of discipleship. Now it's teaching. When you read the word teach in verse 19, if you were like me, you might have thought of a classroom, right? You got your teacher, a bunch of people sitting there listening to the teacher and imparting knowledge and perhaps truth. That is not what is going on here. Teaching is connected to what Jesus commanded. When a disciple of Jesus Christ takes on a new identity that is in Christ, he or she also takes on a new way to live. And what did Jesus teach? Well, we can go back once again to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. With the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus rightly teaches the commandments. So what is taught are moral governors that exist because of a person's devotion to Jesus Christ. When you're saved, everything changes. If there's a reason why, at least in my experience, why some people want nothing to do with Christianity, oftentimes it's not like disagreements on theology, although that, that certainly does exist. It's because when you read the commands of Christ in, in the Sermon on the Mount, they're like, who can do that? Or they just don't want to be put up to that. They don't want to live like that. However, true disciples of Jesus Christ read what Jesus taught and are moved by the power of the Holy Spirit toward his commandments. Disciples of Jesus Christ are not perfect. We stumble. We fall. But by God's grace, we get back up. Turn to Christ. And we receive all the grace that God has for us. I've said this time and again, being a disciple is not easy, but it's good. It's right. Being a disciple of Jesus will mean that you are confronted with your sin and your flaws, but you also have an act, you have access to an ocean of grace and mercy and love through the cross. And so being taught in the context of Christian discipleship means becoming more and more like our Savior, Jesus. I want to end by having you see the promise given to us by Jesus in verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, and yet he still says, I am with you always. This is an astonishing promise that does see its fulfillment. We read ahead to Acts 2 and Pentecost. 
Jesus doesn't just say, I will be with you. He says, I am with you. There is certainty in the way Jesus describes his presence. There is tremendous assurance of faith in this statement. The Gospel of Matthew opened with assurance that in the coming of Jesus, God was with his people, Matthew 1, 23. And it closes with the promise that the very presence of Jesus Christ will never be lacking for his faithful followers. The presence of Jesus will never be withdrawn. Once saved, always a follower. Once saved, always a disciple-making disciple. Once saved, Jesus is always with you. Always. When life gets hard, God is with you. When life is good, God is with you. When doubt creeps in, God is with you. If God has saved you, he keeps you. I read that earlier from John 10. My sheep know me and they hear my voice. And when they hear my voice, they come to me. Not only that, changed by me, changed by Jesus. And so, as we go out on mission to make and mature more disciples of Jesus Christ, God is with you. God is with you during the hard conversation with family members. God is with you, parents, as you disciple your kids. God is with you in your workplace. God is with you so that you can declare and display the love of Christ to a world that is broken, that is hurting, and in need of a generous and loving Savior. Let's pray.